Uh, if you have a Bible, there is Bibles at the back if you'd like to use one of those as well. We're in Exodus, and we come to the second part of the crossing of the Red Sea. We started it last time, we come to the second today. So we're reading from uh, verse 15 of chapter 14 of Exodus, but we'll pray before we read God's Word together. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your Word. Thank you for the privilege of having your revelation, your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your promises. We thank you that you're a promise-keeping God. And as we consider the crossing of the Red Sea, I pray that you would open our hearts to see your providence, your provision, your care, and your glory. Holy Spirit, give me the words to say, speak well of the Redeemer, in whose name I pray. Amen. Amen. So Exodus in chapter 14 in verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the light, night, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and a cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters been a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so that the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. The crossing of the Red Sea. We started looking at it last week a little. And people who follow the God of the Bible We'll be talking about the crossing of the Red Sea for eternity. Poems have and will be written. Sermons have and will be preached. Movies upon movies will be made. 
It wasn't perhaps the most famous event in the history of Israel. If you think about what 1066 was for England, or the Civil War was for America, or the Battle of Britain for the West, so the crossing of the Red Sea was for the nation of Israel. And you cannot understand their history apart from it, and you cannot understand our Christian history, for the crossing of the Red Sea was the central act, that side of the cross, of God's redemptive history, his plan to save his people. And the crossing of the Red Sea is that event that the Israelites kept telling themselves over and over and over. It was the event that God would remind his people of over and over. When they came, or when they drifted to forget his great power and his care for them. So just for example, Deuteronomy in 11 verse 2, Consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land, and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord had destroyed them to this day. Remember that. Psalm 78, verse 13. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and the waters stand like a heap. Psalm 106, verse 8, Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. He led them through the deep, as though through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe, and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries, not one of them was left. Psalm 136, Verse 13, to him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrow through Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. Isaiah 50, verse 2, is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. Isaiah 51 verse 10, Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And Isaiah 63 verse 12, Who caused his glorious arm to go right at the hand of, hand of Moses, who divided the waters to make for himself an everlasting name. So over and over, God reminded them, this is the story they kept telling when God wanted to steal their resolve toward obedience, he said, remember what I did for you in the Red Sea. And when they were wandering and they needed the discipline of the Lord, he said, do not forget what I did for you in the Red Sea. When they came to doubt the goodness and the power of God, he said, remember when I divided the waters of the Red Sea and swallowed up your enemies. So the crossing of the Red Sea was the pivotal point in their history and it's a turning point in the Exodus narrative. It was a turning point. It may not have lasted as long as we might hope but it was a turning point for the Israelites nevertheless. Exodus 14 verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, 
This is where we left off. The people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. You remember that? They were fearful. They were between the, they were between the Egyptian army and the sea. And in verse 10, all they could see was the enemy. All they could see was their difficulty. All they could see was their predicament. But then we come to verse 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, and Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. When we last left off last week, at the end of verse 14, Israelite, yeah, Moses was giving the Israelites their life first. Be silent. Be silent. Because they were full of complaints. They complained all the time. And Moses said, be quiet. And they were full of complaints, protestations and fear. And all they could see were the Egyptians. All they could see were the enemy. So they went from having eyes to only see the bigness of the enemy to having eyes that can only see the power of God. And that changes everything. And that changes everything. That pivotal moment from only seeing their plight to seeing God's power would forever be remembered. And we will never forget. We will never forget God's redemption. We will never forget the crossing of the Red Sea. It is our history. And the Lord said to Moses and to the people, if you look at verses 15 and 16, now is the time to go. They'd been grumbling, they'd been complaining, and Moses was telling them to be strong and confident in the Lord. And now the Lord says to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Probably wasn't a meant as a rebuke to Moses, but through Moses to the complaining Israelites. Why are you complaining? Why are you pleading? Why are you crying? Enough! Now is not the time for bleating. Now is not the time for weeping and wailing. Now is the time to go. It's a good word for us, I think, because if we just keep pleading and praying and praying and praying and we keep complaining and weeping and wailing, we think sometimes that if we just do that, then God will be pleased. A little bit like what I was saying a few weeks ago, that sometimes we get wrapped up in the journey, so the main point is the journey, but the journey always has a destination. The main point about the journey is not the journey, the main, the main point is where we're going. And we sometimes think that if we just, if we just curl up in a faint, feet, fetal position in the corner of the room, rocking quietly, but we're pleading and praying, then we're okay. No, but God is happy when we direct our fears towards him. At least the Israelites did that in verse 10. They cried out to the Lord, so they cried in the right direction. But there's a time when the Lord says, I have heard. I have listened. Now is the time to act. Now is the time to go. I love what Spurgeon says about this passage. Far be it from me, I quote, ever to say a word in disparagement of the holy, happy, heavenly exercise of prayer. But beloved, there are times when prayer is not enough. When prayer itself is out of season, when we prayed over a matter to a certain degree, it becomes sinful to tarry any longer. Our plain duty to carry our desires into action 
and having asked for God's guidance, having received divine power from on high, to go at once to our duty without any longer deliberation of delay. So you see that sometimes to sit and to ponder longer is not a mark of great faith, but actually a mark of fear. They might well have said, well, just give us another few days. Just give me a few more days. I'm feeling ever so spiritual at the moment. I need to go into a small room. I need to get my wits about me. And we're pleading, we're praying. And of course, no one prays enough, right? Now is the time to go. Now is the time to act. Now is the time to go. And of course, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to go. They couldn't see any way out of it. They were trapped between an invincible army and the big blue sea. Or so it looked. It was time for Israel to move because it was time for God to act. It was time for Israel to move because it was God's time to act. I love how one commentary says, when did God act? When all hope seemed lost. When all hope seemed lost. And that's when God loves to act the most. And when all hope seems to be lost, so that he might receive the glory, and it might be abundantly clear to everyone that this was by God's mighty hand. They could have no illusions of their own grandeur. Or maybe we were kind of smart enough, you know, we had a really good plan. You know, our committee's been meeting for 14 months, and it's been really, we've got a really good plan going, and Remember, we got out of Egypt really quickly and we did the whole thing with the unleavened bread. That was really nice. And then we had a really smart path and we avoided the Philistines, right? And we got there. No, 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 no. They were complaining like crazy. They were complaining. But God says, I want you to be trapped. I'm set in a trap and you're the cheese. I want you to be here. And we'll have an army here and a sea there. And you're not going to know what to do. It's God's way of saying, this is going to be good. It looks desperate. It looks hopeless. The world seems to be submerging us. Social media seems to be swarming all over us. Our enemies seem to be encroaching on us. But when it looks hopeless, it's when God is at his best. And it was time for the Israelites to go when it was time for God to act. So what do they see? What do they see? They see several examples of his power. Number one, they see his sovereign sway over the hearts of his enemies. You see that in verses 17 and 18. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and so on. And in verse 23 it says, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them all of Pharaoh's horses, and so on. And verse 24, And in the morning watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. This was God's doing. No sensible chariot commander would send his troops into the midst of some murky, muddy former sea. Even if there are walls of water on one side and the other, this is the last thing you did with your expensive chariots to get them bogged in the mud. It makes no sense. You would have thought that after 10 plagues, someone on the Egyptian side would have said, Pharaoh, I'm just thinking that while I do not know what is going to happen, 
It's probably going to end up bad for us. Remember all the other times? Maybe we should just let them go. No, go into the water. The water? Yeah, go. Just do it. And so the Lord hardened the hearts one more time. And this happens to people, and it's a great reminder. Sin makes us insane. Sin makes no sense. Now you can understand allure and temptation, but at the heart of it, sin is completely irrational. People lose their minds. It is insanity. Why would they do that if they were thinking clearly? But sin never makes you think clearly, my friend. Maybe you've seen that in your own life or in the lives of people you love. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? Why would they throw everything away for 20 minutes of insanity? Why? Why would you do that? But sin never makes you smart. Sin makes you insane. And it is sin here, hardened in their hearts, that leads them to the great folly to pursue the Israelites into the Red Sea. Sin made them insane. And God had sovereign sway over them. He knew that. He clogged their wheels, he threw them into a panic, and throws them into the sea. Such is his power. We see his power. Secondly, we see his power in the pillar of fire. Verse 19, the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. You see what is going on here? The angel of the Lord and the pillar are one and the same. Two different ways of describing the same theophany, the visible presence of God among them. God could say to the Israelites, I'm literally going to move heaven and earth for you. The Israelites of all people should not have doubted God's presence. What had God given them? What has God given them? I'll give you a cloud here, water there, fire to light up the night, the angel of the Lord to protect you so you'll pass through the sea and the Egyptian army held at bay. Such is his power in a pillar of fire in the sovereign sway over the hearts of his enemies. Thirdly, in the distinction that God makes between Israel and Egypt. And if you remember, you know, we, we, are, we are looking at what they see and what, and what we see. And verse 28, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The water has been a wall for them on the right hand and on the left. God is a God who makes distinctions. Maybe unpopular, but it's biblical. Not one of God's people is lost. Not one of the hosts of Pharaoh is spared. And I hope you understand, my dear friends, so it will be when Christ returns. As the Apostle Creed says, to judge the living and the dead. Not one who belongs to Christ will be lost. Not one. But not one apart from Christ will be saved. The Egyptians are swallowed up in the sea. God is making a distinction between his people and his enemies in the Red Sea. I want to say something about the Red Sea. I alluded to it a little bit last week. 
and uh, I've got a pastor's Bible with me here, but I, in most Bibles, my, my, most Bibles are at home, I have a map in the back. And you remember the maps in the back when I was a kid? I used to sit there in sermons and read the maps. And Sorry, instead of listening to the sermon, I'm sorry about that. But if you let me t- tell you something about the Red Sea. Some of you may have read this or heard debates about it. Where did the Israelites cross the Red Sea? And I would argue that the maps at the back are generally correct. And that is a traditional understanding that the Israelites crossed at the top of the Red Sea, at the tip of what is known as the Gulf of Suez. But the Hebrew phrase in your Bibles, the Hebrew phrase is Yam Suf. And Suf can also mean reeds or papyrus stalks. And the same word suf is used in Exodus 2 and 3 to describe the reeds that grew along the River Nile. And reeds grow in marshy, fresh water. So some people, again educated beyond their intelligence, have argued that yam yam suf is better translated the sea of reeds. So rather than the Red Sea, it's the sea of reeds. So it wasn't the Red Sea, it wasn't the big Red Sea that these guys say, but it was one of the lakes north of the Red Sea, or maybe in the time of Moses because of climate change, yeah, yeah, the Red Sea extended further north and included all the small inland lakes and man-made canals. Or maybe someone else said Yam Suf is just a reference to a marshy, swampy area in the Nile Delta, where the tide was low and the wind blew out, and they passed through six inches of water. The view of the Sea of Reeds became very common amongst liberals, liberal Bible scholars. Anything rather than believe the Bible, just absolutely anything rather than believe that what God said happened. They believe today a man can be a woman, but they don't believe the Bible. Sin makes you insane, it surely does. Sin makes you insane. But there's been a movement in the last few decades to return to the traditional view, which I believe is the right one. So go get your Bible, have a look at the map at the back, and the Israelites crossed the Red Sea at the north end of the Red Sea. There's a journal article in 1983 called The Reed Sea, Rest in Peace. And it's put to death this idea of the Sea of Reeds. So why does it say the Red Sea in our Bibles, if it could be translated in Hebrew, Sea of Reeds. Well, the Greek translation, the Septuagint translates it as the Red Sea. No body of water in the northern region of the Delta has ever been identified as Yam Suf, and whenever Yam Suf is used, it refers to the Red Sea. 1 Kings 9 verse 26 and Jeremiah 49 verse 21. There's a reference to Yam Suf, and because of the cities that it references, clearly means the Red Sea. And scholars also point out that Suf is related to the Hebrew word end. So Yam Suf could just as well be translated the Sea of the End. In other words, the end of the Red Sea, which is is where we understand the Israelites crossed. The word Yam Sea Lake never refers to a marsh, always to a sea or large body of water. But it Reminded me of this story. I may have told it before. I usually tell stories multiple times anyway. But you may have heard it in multiple different ways, which 
makes me think that the story may not be true, but it's one of those stories where if it isn't true, it jolly well should be. Um, and I heard about a little girl in a Sunday school class or a man listening to a liberal preacher. But the story is the same, which is why I wonder if it's true, but it definitely should be. And uh, there was a young girl in a Sunday school class and they were going through the story of the Red Sea, how God led the Israelites through the Red Sea with a miracle on dry land. And the little girl said, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. What an amazing God we have that he would send the Israelites through on dry ground through the Red Sea. And the liberal teacher said, you don't understand. It wasn't the Red Sea. It was just a little body of water with a low tide and the wind blew through it. And the Israelites passed through six inches of water. And the little girl responded, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, that he drowned the Egyptian army in six inches of water. <laughs> So, if it's not true, it absolutely jolly well should be. But we see here God making a distinction between his people and his enemies. It will not do, it will not do to say God's word. Did God really say? Ever since the Garden of Eden, men and women have been saying, Did God really say? It will not do to domesticate the miracle and say it was just a little pool. It's the Red Sea, and God worked a miracle. And in the Exodus story, we see the exclusive nature of God's covenant. It's a covenant in which foreigners and people can enter into. We've seen that. But it's an exclusive covenant without which you are lost. So we see his power in the distinction that he makes. We see his power in those walls of water heaped up to the right and the left. If you have a good sense of your Bible, surely you hear the echoes of the creation story. Surely you hear the echoes of Noah's flood. You know the Hebrew word ruach, which is translated wind or spirit or holy spirit. Remember the ruach hovering over the waters of the deep, Genesis 1? Or in Genesis 8 verse 1, in Noah's day, God made a ruach blow over the earth. The water subsided. The water subsided because of the Ruach. And here we have a Ruach, the east wind that blew through the Red Sea. So creation, Noah, the Red Sea, a Ruach. And just as creation, dry land, dry land appeared out of a watery mess. Genesis 1 verse 9, that the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Genesis 8 verse 13, the Noah, the Noah story. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. The face of the ground was dry. And Exodus 14, we have the dividing of the waters and the dry ground appeared. Genesis 1 verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Genesis 7 verse 11, on the same day all the foundations of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened, and here the waters divided one side to the other. Why is that significant? Because the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea, is another one of God's creative acts. God made the world. God separated the waters from the waters so that dry land would appear. Because of sin, he destroyed the world that he had made. And in remaking the world after Noah, God sent a wind to separate the waters from the waters so dry land would appear. 
And in the Exodus, in the Exodus, my friend, in the crossing of the Red Sea, God is creating once again a new people, a new nation, a new land, a new day. So when the Ruach blows, it separates the waters from the waters and the dry land appears. So there's even much more than the, just the miracle of heaps of water standing on edge, one side to the other. It is the creative power of God unleashed for the redemption of his people. And number four, we see God's power as he swallows up Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. We see that in verse 18, 23 and 26. And part of what we're meant to see is God uses the strength of his enemies against themselves. What did Egypt have that made them so unconquerable? Well, they had chariots, they had stealth bombers, they had the tanks, they had the cruisers, they had the destroyers, they had the submarines, they had the stealth bombers. Those submarines would look good on the desert, but you know what I mean. They were the elite military technology of the day. They had chariots and horsemen. They have this undefeatable army. And what does God do? He turns their strength against themselves. So it's their military might that does them in. The simple turning of a chariot wheel got clogged up in the mud and the muck and the mire. Swallowed up. Jehovah's victory over his Pharaoh and his people and his army and his gods is complete. Yahweh's victory is complete. In verse 27, the final destruction took place when the morning appeared. Now we read that, but, 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 but remember Egypt's chief god, Amran-Ra, we've looked at that, Amran-Ra, the sun god. And the Egyptians believed that every day at sunset, Amran-Ra died, and every morning at sunrise, Amran-Ra is born again. And at the dawning of the day, as their great sun god, Amran-Ra, is ascending into the sky, at the moment which should be their greatest victory, God says, that will do for me to swallow you up. And God gets the glory over Pharaoh, his army, his horsemen, his charioteers, and all, over all the false gods and goddesses of Egypt. They didn't see, they could not see all that God could see. All they could see was dead Egyptians on the seashore. And notice one other contrast between verse 10 and verse 31. Verse 10, they lifted up their eyes and they saw the advancing forces of the enemy. They feared. Verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Earlier on, they feared the Egyptians. They disbelieved what Moses said. Now they feared the Lord and believed in Moses. You see that contrast? See that contrast? And that's what the power of God is meant to do for them and for us. Not to impress us, but to lead us to fear of the Lord and faith. If you do not fear the Lord, and you do not trust the Lord, or you have not seen the great power of the Lord, or you've seen it and forgotten it, you saw it in your day, you remember, but you forget. You forget the stories. The Bible stories become old, the preacher gets boring, they become familiar. Or the things that God did to answer your prayers, they become commonplace. 
and they fade with the years and you forget the power of the Lord that you have seen. We have seen his power in stories like this. Even now you know his power. We will know it on the last day when he comes again. What about now? What about now? It was great that you could say, well, it's great for the Israelites. I believe it too. I'd believe it too if I saw that and I saw a bunch of dead Egyptians on the seashore chasing me in the waters. But what about power now? There are many ways to answer that, but maybe the best way is Romans 1 verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then the Greek. So we're just like the Israelites doubting his power. Lord, look at the world around us. Look at what's happening here. You think the gospel's going to save people anymore? Look at the church. Look at the mess the church is in. You think the Lord's going to save his people anymore? You think the Lord can save really bad people? You think the Lord can save everyone? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Do you realise how dead in your sins and trespasses you were apart from Christ? No matter how good a family you had, we were born into this world absolutely dead. That is, the, that is the truth of the Bible. You weren't born a little good. You haven't made a few mistakes. No, you're a sinner, dead in your trespasses and sin. No one does good. No, not one. No one seeks after God. No one. No one does what is righteous. The thoughts of their heart are only evil all the time. The heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? We were bent against God. We were blind to him. And yet, here we are this morning. We're singing songs, praying prayers, believing in the promises. If you belong to Jesus Christ, my friend, you've experienced the miraculous power of God. Every bit as great as the crossing of the Red Sea. If you belong to Jesus, my friend, that is every bit as big a miracle as the crossing of the Red Sea. Because he gave you a new heart. He forgave your sin. He opened blind eyes. He made you incline your heart to precious things. That's why you're here. Instead of worthless things. God has done that by his great power. There is a God who can save you. If only you could see and would see. That you're trapped. You're trapped between the army of the Egyptians and the deep blue sea. You're trapped. Are you ready to leave Egypt? Are you ready for the exodus? Will you trust the Lord enough to go? Instead of Jesus in, verse, in Luke chapter 9, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish. At Jerusalem. And that word departure means exodus. So his word departure is literally exodus. Jesus was about to have his great deliverance from the cross and the empty tomb. So my question to you this morning is, will you follow him? John 5 verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death life.
May that be the portion of everyone here for God's glory. Amen.